Welcome back to Pedagogy Non Grata, uh, where we bridge the gap between learning in the classroom and uh, the scientific evidence. I'm joined here today by uh, an old coworker, actually, named uh, Mitch Huguenin. Uh, I met Mitch, actually, when I was in uh, college, because um, we both worked at a museum. Um, and he actually, he taught me how to blacksmith, which uh, is kind of cool, because blacksmithing was my all-time favorite part about working at the, the museum. It's just a really cool thing to be able to do. Uh, and it's like really rewarding. I don't know if you remember that much. Like it's just like carpentry takes forever. Blacksmithing, you like heat the metal, you hit it and it instantly changes form. It's, it's, it's like such instant gratification. Yeah, I, I gotta admit, woodworking was never my forte. It's not as forgiving as, as blacksmithing. If you make a mistake when you're blacksmithing, you can, you can iron out the issue and then, and then uh, make something really cool. I always enjoyed that actually. Yeah, it's way better in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I recently found out that Mitch has, uh, become a teacher at a teacher's college and I thought it was such a great, uh, opportunity to talk to him about what he's doing. And he's also talking about a topic that's uh, pretty near and dear to my heart, which is, um, indigenous education. And I invited him on here to get a little bit more about his insights on the issue. So before I say something wrong, I'm going to ask uh, Mitch to just introduce himself and give a little bit of his backstory to the audience. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that, Nate. Um, it's it's cool to connect with you. And, you know, I think it's honestly been about 10 years since we worked together at the historic site there. And uh, so it's, it was really cool to hear from you. And I've been been busy since we worked there together and uh, shared with you a little bit about that. But uh, I, I think it's important first to to talk a little bit, maybe just about my my indigeneity where I come from and I think you already know a bit about this having having worked with me back in the day but you know I, I grew up in in Penetanguishene Ontario and it's a, one of the older uh, Métis settlements in, in Canada certainly one of the oldest in in Ontario and so I, I identify very proudly as Métis and uh, you know my 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 upbringing was sort of I don't know really how to describe it but sort of a a hybrid style of upbringing in terms of like, you know, learning from my father a lot about, you know, Western systems and more from my mom about indigenous systems. And that certainly come into play in my, my uh, professional career. Now um, I, I, now I, I uh, work at Trent university uh, at the center for teaching and learning. And my role there is indigenous pedagogy uh, specialist. Um, uh, sort of an education developer role uh, where I, I assist faculty in integrating indigenous perspectives throughout their uh, practice or teaching practice. Um, and I'm also an instructor there. Uh, I teach uh, three uh, courses, uh, two in indigenous studies and one in education, and then three other courses at Durham College where, uh, where I've got the title of professor, which is <laughs> fancy but it's it's really awesome all of all of that work sort of uh interconnects and uh, i really enjoy it i've been doing doing the teaching uh side of things for for about four or five years and the the pedagogy side of things for about three years uh so i i wouldn't say i'm an expert but uh certainly uh certainly enjoy the work that i'm doing and hope to become an expert eventually I, li I like your humility, to be honest. Uh, it's something I need to work on myself, to be honest, is being more humble. Uh, when I when I listen to like other like educators who I really respect, all like the, the most intelligent people I ever like get to talk to or listen to, they're always so humble. And it's always like really striking. Like these people with these huge reputations who are like just genius in the field, they're just most down to earth people. So I think I think it it might be one of those things where the more you know, the more humble you become. But uh I, I wanted to ask you a little bit actually there about uh, what it means to be Métis because a lot of our audience is actually international. So in fact, I think only about three to 5% of our audience is Canadian. So to the outside perspective, what does it mean to be Métis? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. I think for, for folks internationally, that might be a, might be a new word because it's, it's used mostly it, well, it may be used in other places, but mostly in, in Canada as far as I know. And it, it's it's a an old French word uh, that means to mix quite literally to mix races, 
Um, but in a more uh, specific kind of context, it's, it's an identifying term uh, used by a very specific group of people uh, who have a, a, a hybrid genealogy, a mixed genealogy. Um, so my, my ancestors historically were, were indigenous or First Nations, uh, as well as European. Um, now, for a long, long time in Canada, the, the history books taught that's who the Métis were, and that's it. They were just a mixed race people, and that's where the story ends. Um, so there's been this misconception, I think, in Canada that there are a lot more Métis than, in fact, uh, exist. Um, so the phrase I like to use, and I always say it wrong, so bear with me, but it's, uh, it's something like, every Canadian is Métis, but not every Canadian is part of the Métis nation. Um, so every Canadian is like that, that original definition of Métis. Every, everyone's got mixed ancestry, right? Um, and there are a lot of Canadians who have mixed indigen, Indigenous ancestry. Uh, but what makes us a little bit more unique is that our ancestors came about during the fur trade. Um, uh, usually European fur trader men uh, uh, coming into relationship with indigenous women. Uh, during the fur trade era, let's say 1650 to 1850. Um, and uh, my, my people uh, arose out of that time and, and uh, played a really important part uh, during that time as uh, traders and trappers and voyagers. Um, we also, uh, we, we also call various different regions or settlement areas, our historical homelands, uh, depending on who you talk to, they might call them traditional territories. That's more of a first nations thing. So I think for the Métis, our, our homelands would be the various settlements uh, along waterways and rivers that we frequented. Um, and there, there are a few more details there. I think that, that help comprise a Métis identity, but those are the, the key, the key elements, I think. Um, mixed ancestry derived during the fur trade and uh, belonging to specific communities or settlements uh, uh, that also would have been associated with the fur trade. Um, so we were like the, the bushwhackers, the original frontiersmen, born and raised out in the wilderness. And uh, I feel almost, because like you know me, I, I feel you, you gave this really nice glowing introduction. I taught you how to blacksmith, but like, that's the most like the most like tough guy macho thing I'm into. Like I, I don't know what it's like to be out in the bush. Like I, I still have to do that learning, but certainly my ancestors would have known their way around. Um and so yeah, that's that's sort of my 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 concept of Metis identity, I think. That's that's funny. Uh just I, I will say though, at the same time, you you're kind of painting this picture that you're this very like odd macho person. But I will say the first time, like, I saw you when you were in high school, actually, I, I couldn't believe the size of the person I was looking upon because he's, like, one of the biggest people I've ever met in my entire life. And I don't mean, like, he's, like, obese. <laughs> that very jacked dude. Uh, I, I got to ask, is there a cultural component to that, too, when we're talking about the Métis First Nation? Like, is it, you see it as, like, people who practice that Métis culture, or is it just more of a genealogical thing? The, the Métis were some of the toughest high endurance athletes without being athletes. Uh, they, I, I can't recall the numbers off the top of my head, but they, they spent so much of their time, the Voyagers specifically spent so much of their time on the water paddling hours on end. And they would, they would consume like their diet would surprise us today. They would consume a ridiculous number of calories to compensate for all of their uh cardio yeah yeah and they were they were strong too right they they would carry these big uh packs of furs and whatnot and all of their camping supplies and like oh i guess i should say too like one of the identifying symbols of of my people is that metis sash it's like it's basically like a weightlifting belt it's these old these old 
sashes, multicolored sashes that you'd wrap around your waist several times over. And that would help you, help to stabilize your back and your core, uh, prevent hernias and things like that. So like, I, I don't think it ever played in initially uh, when I got into weightlifting and whatnot back, back in high school, but uh, it may, maybe it, maybe it helped somehow, but certainly historically the Métis were, were high endurance, strong, strong people and the women as well. I should, I should highlight that the women were and remain super, <laughs> super tough and uh, just as capable of, as the men, if not even more capable. So that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, I, if I could just clarify that question though, a little, so when I, when you say you're, you're Métis today, um, and you talk about other people who might identify as Métis, do you see that as exclusively like a, a, like, a, um, like a genealogy thing? Or do you see it as like a cultural thing too? Like you practice a Métis culture, ergo you're Métis? Or is it like your ancestors are Métis, ergo you're Métis? Or is it a combination of the two? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's kind of a combination. Uh, so so I've, I've met folks who will, who will approach me and say, hey, like I heard my great, 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 great grandparent was an Indian. So, so I'm Métis, right? Cause like I'm half white and half native. And it's like, eh, maybe, maybe do your history, historical research, like <laughs> before saying that. And it's not to say that they're wrong. It's just to say, you know, you need to understand the, the culture a little bit better than just, Hey, I think my uh, great, great, ancestor was was a first nations person um so i think you've i think for me it's important that you um that you understand what that word means it's important that you understand um that to be metis you're you're accepted by other metis uh, you have a, like a community that you belong to um but that's you know, that's tough too, because there are a lot of indigenous peoples, you know, First Nations, Métis, Inuit, or Mix that, that don't understand or know a lot about their indigeneity, which is kind of a result of colonization. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's tough. I think before you assert an identity, you have to at least under, understand the foundations of that identity a little bit better than just, oh, I'm mixed. I'm this, <laughs> right? Yeah, I can speak that a little like, uh, growing up, I my family has some some mixed heritage. We have some indigenous people in our family history, and I was always told, "Oh, we're Métis," but I wasn't super like comfortable with it. I didn't really have like the understanding of it as a kid to really express why. But it was just more like, "Okay, but like we we don't know the name of this person who was indigenous in our past. We don't know exactly where they're from. Like we don't know anything about their culture, or we don't have any words from their language." And I just I, I felt super uncomfortable trying to claim that as a part of my identity. Like I would be trying to steal something from another person, but For you sure. hear that all the time from like uh, people in Canada. Um, and I, I but uh, on the opposite side, this is kind of where I was getting at. Like, I've also known someone who's recently doing their PhD thesis on this. And actually they just finished last week. Um, and they are from a, a group of people, the Panatanguishine too, like you, yeah. who, uh, um, had an Métis ancestry, but like they, they felt like that through colonization and residential schools, they had lost that like cultural piece. So they wanted to like reclaim that identity. So I don't know, I guess what I'm really getting, it just feels like there's a ton of like politics around this. And it's almost like a, a hard question to ask, like what is, what is Métis? It's, it is a very hard question to ask and perhaps even a more challenging one to answer. There's, there's even now, like currently, I, there are conversations about who belongs to the Métis nation. And like, like my people were, uh, you know, the great lakes Métis, right. They spent their time in this part of turtle Island or Canada, this, this part being like, um, uh, historically what would have been called upper Canada, um, around the great lakes region. Um, but then there are other Métis who identify with the Plains being out West, the Buffalo hunters. Like, I don't know if my ancestors ever hunted a single Buffalo, but they were Métis and they identified as Métis for, for social, cultural and political reasons. Um, but yeah, 2021 
crazy time and uh, Métis across the country will uh, sometimes get along, but often argue about what Métis actually means. Um, and there are even more problems on the far east coast and on the far west coast too. So, But that's part of being Indigenous as well, I think, is uh, <laughs> not necessarily arguing, but, but having heated discussions about uh, who we are and where we come from and where we're going. And sometimes those are very positive conversations, but they can be challenging. Yeah, I mean, I think you see that all over the world. I remember reading about Greeks arguing about who, who was really Greek. Yeah. Uh, and I, I recently spent a lot of many years of my life living in the Cree nation, which was an awesome experience. But I found out like some of the Cree would argue with um, the Inuit people saying that the Inuit people weren't real First Nation people. And oh. just as like, like a white person from down south, I was just like so mind boggled that someone would be like, an indigenous person would argue another indigenous person isn't a real indigenous person. Yeah. But uh, I think that's just life. There's always these weird sort of arguments that exist. Not to uh, be pejorative about it, but. The, it's a product of colonization, right? Like these various different categories. I think historically we were a little bit more fluid with our identities and more accepting of other people from other nations. And, uh, you know, indigenous peoples in Canada were, were uh, I don't know if there's a term for this, but they were very keen on adopting different people into their communities and into their families. Um, these days there's money tied up in everything and the Canadian government and the old crown government had created so many laws and rules around identifying terms. So, you know, everyone wants a cut of the pie or a piece of the pie. Money is at the root of all these <laughs> discussions, I think, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it, it's a problem across the world. Like you said, it's, it's not just a Métis thing, but, just so happens not everyone really understands that word very well. So hopefully your listeners understand it a little bit better now. Yeah, for sure. Although I feel like now we've had this, we've used the first uh, 20 minutes of our podcast episode to discuss the definition of Métis. And I almost feel sorry for our audience, but you never know. If they're listening to my podcast, they're a nerd. And that's why I say that with love because I'm a nerd too. So uh, you know what? I'm going to try and move on to the second question of the interview. Um, so what obstacles do you think Indigenous students have faced in Canada, both presently and historically? Uh, well, historically, uh, um, immense challenges. I'm, I'm teaching a course at Trent right now, which is actually called the History of Indigenous Education in Canada. And prior to first contact, we had our own ways, I should say First Nations and Inuit had their own ways of doing education. Um, you know, it was very experiential. It was based around an oral culture, story sharing and spending time on the land and, you know, learning from your elders. Uh, when, when newcomers arrived, you know, my, my people came to be, but, uh, and that was a very positive outcome, but very negative outcome was the uh, establishment of, of, you know, Euro Western schools and school systems, education systems. Uh, they were designed for European or American or Canadian kids, not, not for indigenous students and indigenous students really struggled. And I think from, from early on the, the goal of uh, school systems that would later be designed specifically for Indigenous students was to assimilate them and make them more like everyone else. Uh, certainly when we talk about residential schools, we know the goal of residential schools was to quite, quite uh, thoroughly destroy, kill the Indian and the child um, to assimilate, to assimilate the, the children into the main body politic of Canada. That's literally a quote from the Prime Minister of Canada. Yeah. Like, clarify that to the audience, because like I said, so many of them are not from Canada. Yeah, yeah. Johnny McDonald, like, and, and all of his, his, all of his pals back in, in the mid to late 1800s, we would call, we would call racists today, because their goal was to, to destroy us, and uh, maybe not actually kill us, but that, uh, that did happen. But, but to actually destroy the Indian within us and make, make us just like 
every other Canadian civilized, as they would say. Um, but the outcome was absolutely horrendous. Indigenous children for, for generations were uh, completely disrupted. Communities were disrupted by residential schools and other, um, uh, other colonial uh, education systems. Today, uh, Indigenous students uh, in various different parts of Canada uh, still struggle um, in, in our modern systems of education. Uh, but it depends on, on where you look at and who, who you're looking at, which communities, which people. Um, I, would, I would say that our current system of uh, education, at least in, in Ontario, is, is, is certainly better than it was when you and I were in school uh, as young people. Kids are learning more about Indigenous history and culture, and I think that's really good. But I, I, I would argue that our, our Indigenous students are still struggling uh, for various reasons in 2021. Reason being, again, these, these systems weren't designed for them, right? So it's like trying to fit the, the square puzzle piece into the circular uh, receptacle. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't fit really very well. So I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah. I just actually, it's funny. I was just, uh, I'm, I'm taking a course right now because, you know, learning never ends, I suppose, as an adult, you think you're done high school and then you just keep going back and back. But, uh, one of the course material questions I had today was, is, is, uh, Canada and Ontario doing enough to promote an inclusive environment for education and I, I honestly I thought when I looked through like the government materials it all just seemed very tokenistic to me I don't know if you was that do you, do you feel like we're doing something that's like in depth trying to change the system on like an institutional level or do you feel like it's like a band-aid being slapped on or do you think everyone's trying to do their best and it's just it's uh Rome wasn't built in a day uh yeah a little bit of everything Rome wasn't built in a day and this colonial era has lasted more than 500 years. So it, it'll take longer than, I don't know, when did the TRC's final report come out? 2015. So it'll take longer than six years to identify all of those, uh, those calls to action. But, um, and for, for your listeners, Nate, the, the TRC is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. Um, proposed 94 calls to action, right, for Canada to take up on addressing the legacy of residential schools. So there, there is still more work to be done, and that's going to be ongoing for years and years and years, hopefully. Um, and I think that some of, some of the ways in which these issues are being addressed are sort of the Band-Aid approach, which isn't necessarily very good. Uh, and I have... I have taken a look at the uh, government documents, the curriculum documents, and, and noticed, as you're saying, like the, the tokenistic suggestions. Um, lots of great suggestions in the history curriculum and social studies curriculum. Um, uh, high, by high school, things are getting a little bit better within the English curriculum. Um, but I'm looking at other subject areas and noticing, well, we could be included there as well, like maybe some indigenous approaches to geography or science or math. Uh, it should be integrated in every subject, not just within um, history and social studies. But so, one, yeah, oh, sorry, go. I was just going to say one good thing that you, you're probably aware of is uh, in the Peterborough area, uh, we've, we've now got at least for the time being, we've got a real strong commitment to including indigenous uh, literature at the grade 10 English level. Uh, so that's, that's like across Peterborough and maybe even further beyond. So now all of our grade 10s are, are reading indigenous authors and learning about indigenous literature, which I think is better than a Band-Aid. I think that's one of those more systemic changes that's really positive. I, I, will, I will say on that note, you know, and I've, I've had arguments with... Um uh peers in the past and different school boards about this issue of like you know what percentage of literature should be like 
sort of uh, identifiable to our students. And, you know, I still think there, there's tons of people pushing Shakespeare. Um, and I just feel like Shakespeare really has no place in Canadian education. I really strongly believe that, but that's sort of neither here nor there. But uh, I think there's still some, some resistance to it. I feel like, it, like if there's one text thrown in a year, you know what I mean? Like, and then we have like nine European texts or 1800s British texts thrown in there uh, beside it. Uh, like I worry about the weight of that. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yeah. You don't, you, you definitely want to avoid the, the checkbox approach, right? Like, Oh, we, we gave them an, an indigenous book to read. We don't have to worry about that again. Yeah. It's like black history month. Like, I mean, that's cool, but shouldn't we be remembering our, you know, black historical movers and shakers all year round? <laughs> like, sort of to say, like, for one, one month, we remember black history, but for the rest of the month, we remember white history? I, I don't know. It's kind of strange. I, I had a, actually, an anonymous, because it's Black History Week right now on my school board. I don't know if that's world round. I'm not literate enough on that, but uh, I had a friend from an, like, another uh, school board actually texting me being like, I have to do, they're a music teacher, and they're like, I have to do a black history music lesson. And should I do blues, jazz, or rap music? Um, I can only pick one because I only have time for one. And I was like, why? why? And they're like, well, I only have one lesson. And I was like, well, you could just do more than one lesson. You know, like it could take yeah. out more than one lesson. But Exactly. I don't exactly. know. They, they actually laughed. They hadn't actually thought of that, which is the funny part. And I think they saw like the problem with that, which is the funny part. But like, yeah. Yeah, you just have to take a step back and, think about it <laughs> not to say you can't teach about the you know my my father's an old white guy and he's he's a an awesome person so i don't think there's anything wrong with teaching about the old white men who changed history it's just talk about all the other people too yeah <laughs> yeah i couldn't agree more with that you know, yeah find a balance so uh what about um mat students because i know that's uh, a bit of your specialty or maybe I, i'm wrong here in representing that but do you think there's any unique obstacles for Métis students in the education system? Uh, yeah I, I think that I think that one unique challenge is that for a lot of young Métis people and maybe, maybe this goes beyond just young students maybe it's a, for a lot of different Métis people I think I think we struggle a lot with our identity and understanding that first part of our conversation, what being Métis means, and you know, what what is where do I fit within the Métis nation? Um, so I what I run into frequently is Métis students approach me and say, "I'm Métis. I've always known I'm Métis. That's how I've been brought up to know that that's who my people are." I don't really know what the word means. I don't really know what our culture is. And I, I, I'd like to learn more. So I think there's, there's this desire to understand their identity better. I think there's also this struggle that, yeah, I'm indigenous, but like I see my friend over there who's born and raised in community on the res, goes to powwow, dances, is really in tune with their culture, is involved with drumming and singing and ceremony and working with elders and just being a part of community. And I think for a lot of us as Métis, we're kind of like, man, that's really awesome. And like, I want to be able to do that. Um, and like, it's not to say that we aren't, it's just to say there are a lot of young Métis, a lot of Métis students who they, they're they're not sure how to engage. They've never had the opportunity to engage with their own people. Um, uh, it's, it's intimidating uh, to say, it's sort of like what you were explaining. You, you, were, you were taught that you have indigenous heritage, but it's intimidating to say like, well, I, I'm an indigenous person. I, when I worked with you, uh, I, I, at that point, when I was like 19, I didn't feel comfortable yet saying, yeah, I'm indigenous and I'm proud of that. I, I would say, yeah, I'm Métis, but I, I didn't yet continue forward to say, yeah, and I'm indigenous. And, you know, so it's, it's intimidating because you've got that imposter syndrome. 
So yeah. I would say that's the biggest challenge for Métis students, um, that feeling of imposter syndrome. It's so, also... Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just, just, just going to say, too, it's also like, and this shouldn't factor in, but it's also like the physical side of things, too. Like, uh, and it's not to say that other Indigenous peoples don't experience this, but especially for, for Métis, like, we're, we are inherently a mixed people so we're we're more frequently physically not indigenous looking and <laughs> I don't, that's very stereotypical but like that's unfortunately how a lot of Canadians think so when I walk into a room being like darker complexion darker hair and whatnot like it's like oh I'm indigenous and people will say oh yeah you fit the bill but someone else walks in who's blonde, blue eyes, fair skin, and they say, oh, I'm Indigenous too, I'm Métis, or I'm First Nations, or I'm Inuit. It's like, really? And that's unfortunate, but that's, and that's a stereotype that we have to overcome in Canada, but that's, that's another challenge. Um, being questioned, like, oh, you're Métis, are you? Um, so there, it's, an, it's, it's intimidating, and a lot of our, a lot of our kids face that sort of, imposter syndrome and that challenge that they have to overcome somehow fair enough yeah um okay well you kind of you kind of touched on this earlier a bit but i i wanted to get more in depth of an answer on it so do you think there are cultural differences um that cause barriers for indigenous students uh cult okay, between cult European culture oh yeah yeah definitely um yeah like there are people who can speak to this far better than i can but like western or euro western worldviews are a little bit different from indigenous worldviews and it's not to say that you can't understand both um i feel like i i grasp both being a mixed person and being raised in a mixed kind of way but like uh, the western approach is very analytical and very much let's let's understand all of these different parts and how they function whereas an indigenous approach is a little bit more uh, spiritual and a little bit more focused on let's understand how those parts all interconnect the relationship between the parts um, so yeah I think that there are certainly different uh, different ways of knowing and and being and learning and teaching and uh, it's not to say one's better than the other it's just to say they have to work together and I think in Canadian education again at least in Ontario we're moving in the right direction because there are more and more moves toward let's include indigenous perspectives or include indigenous content um, as I understand it, that's something that you try to do in your own teaching practice, which is very admirable. Uh, so it's, it's something that is happening, but it's happening slowly. The, the, the intertwining of these two worlds or the interbraiding of these two worlds. Um, but when you've got a kid who's raised on, on the res, who's forced to come and learn on the mainland, which we experienced, you and I, in high school. Um, you know, learning with kids who grew up on Christian Island and coming over to learn with us, it's like, that's a huge culture shock for them. And how they were brought up learning uh, in their home community would be quite different from how things were in Penetanguishene or Midland where we went to school. There is also, there was and still is also the, you know, the issue of racism. Yeah. Um, that's something our students have to unfortunately deal with as well. And high school is brutal for that, <laughs> as is elementary school. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, you know, this is, this is something I've, I've looked at a bit and I've kind of, I struggled with this one personally, to be honest, is this idea of like, is there a First Nations learning style? So I, I guess uh, I worry that it, 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 seeding that maybe there is kind of like um, feeds into like determinism theory that, you know, different groups of like or races of people are like biologically different, you know, 
but I, I could almost see it being more like a cultural thing. Maybe you could, you could speak to this issue. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. It's, it's a sociocultural dynamic. Uh, indigenous, at least historically, or I won't say historically, I'll say traditionally, because it still happens today. Indigenous students, ind young Indigenous people tend to be taught based on their relationships with each other, with, with their community, with the environment within their community and beyond. And an Indigenous teaching or learning style is very experiential. Um, I, I, I am sure that there have been many uh, research projects conducted on Indigenous students to find out how do they like to learn. And I think it's, it's, it's that they're experiential. They tend to be visual learners. They tend to be very artistic uh, people. They tend to express themselves very well orally and visually um, where our students tend, and this is very general because it's not going to apply to everyone, but where our students tend to uh, struggle a little bit is in writing because academic writing is, is very different from conversational writing. Um, but again, those are, I'm painting in very broad strokes. I, I'm an indigenous person and I was successful in a Western education system. That could be a product, another product of assimilation, but, uh, I don't know. Everyone's got a different, a different, uh, uh, learning preference, different learning style. Uh, but I would say that our students tend to be to tend to gravitate toward more of those experiential learning opportunities. And at least with the students I've worked with, they, I wouldn't say they do poorly with writing, but they, they excel when they're able to express themselves orally or visually. All of the students I've worked with, all the indigenous students I've worked with for the most part are like tremendous storytellers. That's just what I've noticed. And I think what a lot of the research would say, but, uh, Again, everyone's different. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I feel like we've been, you know, talking about what is Métis and we've been talking about a lot of the issues and struggles that Indigenous students in Canada might face. But what are, what are some practical solutions that um, you would like to see teachers implement? Uh, well, I think, so before practical solutions, I think just what I'd love to see is more, like more people like you who are, keen to do this work in the first place, to learn first, to, um, to you know, develop a stronger understanding of indigeneity and you know, our history and our collective experience in a modern way, and then to do the work. Like you've got this podcast running, you, you've talked about how you integrate indigenous uh, content within your, uh, your teaching and pedagogies within your approach to teaching and I, like that's super cool and that's what I'd like to see more of but as far as like really um, you know strategic ideas or, or, or strategies rather um, I would say a really good first approach would be to take pause and criti critically reflect on yourself uh, before you dive into this kind of work this work of indigenization you really have to, to understand who you are, uh, understand your positionality better, your biases, your, maybe you've got some misconceptions that you've got to uh, clear up. Um, but then after that, and that's sort of an ongoing process, I think following that you're, uh, you're to do what, what you're doing with me right now is just connect with indigenous peoples, build relationships and get to know us. Um, I think there's a phrase like nothing about us without us. And I, I, I like that phrase. So if you're, if you're hoping to include indigenous content or pedagogies, like don't just do it, maybe connect with someone who knows about those things and collaborate and work together to, to do that good work. Um, it all takes time too. So be very patient, uh, if you're looking to build relationships with indigenous people and, and you've mentioned too, Nate, you, you'd worked with uh, uh, the Cree at, at one point in your teaching career, you'll, you'll know very well that when you first seek out those relationships, there's a little bit of apprehension. And it's because a lot of indigenous peoples have been 
you know, put through the ringer throughout history. Um, and we're, we're, we're apprehensive about starting new relationships with new non-Indigenous folks. And uh, so there's a, there's a lot of patience required there, but starting those relationships, building on those relationships, and then collaborating, that's where I've seen a lot of good teaching come out when, when the, the approach is taken on collaboratively. Um, always being respectful, asking good questions, uh, and being mindful that uh, we too are, are trying to make a living. And um, you and I talked uh, prior to coming together for this podcast and had a good conversation about how doing work together can benefit us both. And I would say when you're looking to build relationships and collaborate, it's always good to, to see how, how your relationship can benefit both sides. Um, that's something our government needs to understand better too. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think knowing yourself is first step. And then second step is, you know, start working on knowing us and uh, then knowing us even better is the third step so that you can build those relationships. Uh, I, like, I like that answer, uh, but uh, you know, it's at the same time, I wonder if it's what people will want to hear. Cause you know, I was almost asking you like, what are the five easy steps every teacher can do tomorrow? And you're like, you know, you're going to research, you're going to question yourself. You're going to critically think and uncover your unconscious bias. And I just thought, Oh, that's all the hard stuff. But well, it, you're right. It, yeah, you're right. And like, like I, before I got into teaching, I got into like personal training. I have a diploma in fitness and health and every, and you know, this as a fitness guy too everyone seeks out the, the, the quick solution. I want to lose 20 pounds as quickly as possible. I want to increase my, uh, you know, my one rep max as quickly as possible. Like, yeah. if, or I want to put, you know, 10 pounds of muscle on. The in, number in of month. times you see that article, how to gain 40 pounds of muscle in three months. You're just like, yeah, really? it just doesn't work. Like, <laughs> no. like you, you have to stay at it and be committed. Like it's a lifestyle thing. And the same goes for the work of indigenization. Like if you want to do this work of including us in your teaching or our perspectives in your teaching, like it, unfortunately it is a long process and it doesn't happen overnight. Um, I mean, I could give you some good strategies like, you know, in, include reflective writing and uh, invite elders to the classroom and, uh, learn how to conduct sharing circles and all that. But those are sort of surface level things that are important, but they're more important when you do that, that other work first, when you, when you take the time to reflect on who you are and build those relationships and work at them for years and years and years. Uh, I think that's a great answer. I just want to add something onto it. If you can suffer me adding onto your answer. Oh, please do. I, I just, uh, I think that there's this assumption in the general public and that all indigenous people are the same. And uh, I just think like, there's so many, like Canada is such a large swath of land and there's just so many different like nations and cultures that exist prior to Europeans coming here that, you know, like when I, when I first met the Cree, like they were so different culturally than like first nations people I met in our area growing yeah. up. And uh, at first, when they told me about their culture, I almost didn't believe them. Like, which is, it's, it sounds really dumb, but like, I, you know, I asked them like, Hey, tell me about your culture. And they're like, our culture is hunting. And I was like, okay, but like, what's, what's your culture? And they're like, no, our, our, our culture is hunting. And I was just like, what are you talking about? Your culture is hunting. How's that a culture? And then I'm like, I got to know, like, no, literally like, that's what they're about. Like they're about like living off the of land and hunting and fishing. Like, that's like their passion, you know? And it's just like, it took me a long time to realize that. And I was like, oh man. Cause like a lot of the indigenous people in our area were like originally farming communities. Mm -hmm. So you don't really get that same vibe talking to them that like, we're, we're no, we're just like hundred percent. We're all about hunting. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 It's cool. And like, we are a super diverse population and even within our populations, we're diverse. Like there will be Métis people maybe listening in on this podcast and thinking, well, that's maybe not how I would identify or how I would define the Métis identity. 
And that's, that's totally fine. I think that's, that's great. In fact, um, we've all got different perspectives. Uh, I have one and then there are, you know, several thousands of other indigenous perspectives in Canada and they're all just as valuable as the next. Um, but it, it is really cool. And when you build those relationships with us, you'll, you'll notice that just, just like you did with the Cree and they're a, they're a hunt, a hunter, a hunting oriented people, but I'm sure there are many Cree who will uh, describe themselves uniquely as well. Yeah. My people were phenomenal hunters and remain great hunters. I'm not a good hunter. <laughs> I'm not even a good fisher. <laughs> I'm a gardener. <laughs> so, and a blacksmith, I guess, but there you go. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, it's gone on a while. Do you mind uh, addressing another thing or? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what about on an institutional level? What would you like to see on an institutional level change in Canada? Uh, high, within schools, hire more Indigenous faculty or teachers, you know, K to 12, post-secondary, hire more Indigenous staff. Um, within, I don't know K to 12 as, as well as I do post-secondary, but most post-secondary institutions have um, Indigenous student support centers. And a lot of those uh, centers are pretty good for hiring Indigenous people. Um, if there is an Indigenous studies department, usually good at hiring Indigenous faculty, but not always. <laughs> and I think K to 12, if you're going to teach and if you're going to offer an Indigenous studies course, you should really be hiring Indigenous folks to be a part of teaching that, those courses, but also to be teaching other uh, parts of the curriculum too. Uh, so like my answer is hire more Indigenous staff, whether they're teachers or support staff, just hire more of us to be involved. Make, make sure that we're qualified, but, but hire us and have us be a part of your, uh, your school community. Like uh, I'm surprised sometimes and this is not, a, again, this is not a knock on non-Indigenous people, but like I've seen so many times non-Indigenous people teaching Indigenous studies types of courses. And it's like, man, like I know someone who could speak to this far better because they actually lived it. Like you're teaching about residential schools as an element of history, but like I know someone who attended residential schools or their, their mom or grandparents attended residential schools. And like, I imagine they'd be able to teach about that really well, or at least like team teaching, right? So that's yeah, I, I, I can't say, uh, in that perspective, I will say two things. The first is I was just actually reading the Ontario's action plan today for um, improving uh, Indigenous relations in uh, school systems. And nowhere in that action plan of action steps was hire more Indigenous people. And it was like my first criticism. I was like, why, why is that not in it as like, action steps? It should be like, that seems an obvious action, but uh, yeah. on, the, on the total opposite end of the spectrum, uh, teaching in the far North in a, in a Cree school, I was hired to be a history teacher there. And one of the history subjects I had to teach was indigenous history um, as like a, you know, a white person from the outside. And yeah. it was like, it was an intimidating thing to do. I, I remember I actually tried to get elders to come in to, teach about the residential schools but um they were they were uh too traumatized to really like share their perspectives with the class like they were nice enough to share their their perspectives with me and their stories with me but like they weren't comfortable sharing it with the students um yeah but so i think team teaching is really cool like have a non-indigenous person and an indigenous person teaching the course the indigenous person can lend a very authentic voice and the non-indigenous person can be that ally who says, Hey, everyone in the classroom who looks like me, listen to this person because what they're saying is true and honest and, and right. And so that, that approach where it's very like woven is, is really effective. Um, like I, like you and I used to do ed tours together and, I don't remember 
any specific one, but I always remember them going really well, even though they weren't always necessarily based in and around indigenous content, they always worked well together. I, I'm, I'm a big supporter of uh, team teaching, mm-hmm. uh, certainly when it comes to indigenous and non-indigenous people teaching together. But yeah, hire more indigenous people. Um, it's intimidating to teach about indigenous history, especially to indigenous kids, like you're saying. Um, and there are a whole lot of other reasons to do it, but just definitely have, have more indigenous peoples working at these schools. Can't encourage that enough. I think that's a pretty awesome recommendation. Uh, so where can people find out more about you? They can find out more about me uh, online. Um, they can learn about me on uh, Trent's uh, CTL website. They can learn about me on my website, which I still don't know if it's like publicly active yet or not. I, I, I visited your website, so I can tell you it's publicly active. Oh, okay. Perfect. Perfect. So you can see, learn more about me there. Uh, where I advertise about my speaking services and whatnot and what I do for a career. And uh, I've also been on, I can't remember if I told you about this, Nate, but I was on um, a CBC show called Future History. It's a documentary series based around revitalizing Indigenous culture. Um, So I was on that show three, two or three summers ago, actually talking about... um, uh, with my sister talking about our, our Métis uh, culture and where we come from. And we actually did it all at the historic site. Um, oh, wow. We're, That's really yeah, cool. We, I actually did some blacksmithing. So you can, That must have been a real blast from the past. It, it was. And I, I was really worried I was going to be caught on camera and not knowing what I was doing. Luckily, I didn't screw up too bad. And I don't think you'll really catch it on on camera, but... Uh, it was fun and you can learn more about me there and, and see me doing the blacksmithing stuff, um, which is actually cool too. Cause, uh, one of the blacksmiths historically that worked there was Métis. That's a cool little tie in. I didn't know that actually. Yeah. It's yeah. a really nice little tie in. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, future history and the episodes are online for free. You can watch all of them if you want season one and two. That's awesome. You know what? If you send me the links to that, when I put this episode up, I will, um share that with the, the podcast and pump that out awesome would love to do that thanks nate all right well thanks for coming on the podcast thank you very kindly for having me